Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 28. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, um, we would like to collect those. And we will pray for you this week. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen to that. He's a living Savior. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what the day is all about. The resurrection lies at the heart of the Christian faith. You take it away and it all falls like a house of cards. Paul said that if, um, there was, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, we'd still be lost in our sins. And of all people on the earth, the most pathetic. But he did rise from the dead. On the first day of the week, the disciples were still reeling from the awful events of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. But on resurrection morning, a day of all days, up from the grave he arose. The women and the disciples would discover the stone covering the tomb where he was placed was no longer there. And soon the testimony began to spread through Jerusalem. And within weeks, Peter would stand up at Pentecost and say, God has raised Jesus. He has raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And because he lives, those who trust in him shall live also. The disciples and the first followers of Jesus would remain true to this message until they died. Think about that for a moment. I'm always drawn to this thought on Easter Sunday morning. The disciples... And the ever-expanding group of those who saw him, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw him at one time. And they preached that until they died. Very literally, because they preached that, they died. Now, you might find one or two who might hold on to a, a myth or some self-fulfilling prophecy, but hundreds, even, even 11 of the disciples, they preached to their martyrdom that Jesus Christ is alive. Would you do that if it wasn't true? I know I wouldn't, but they did. And so Christianity, the message of Christianity is that Jesus' death and resurrection was a God event rooted in history in which salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life was secured by God himself for perishing sinners like us. The upshot for, that, for you this morning is that God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ, what you need most but could never provide for yourself and is offered to you this day as a free gift. This message, this good news is proclaimed yet again in your hearing that you would receive Jesus Christ by faith, fully trusting in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection to provide full deliverance and redemption from death's torment, to have a future and a hope and God's promises. So receiving Jesus into your life, what does that mean? <laughs> that reminds me of a story. 
of a little boy who was crying in church and his mother took him out. And as he was taking the, as she was taking the little boy out, he, he called out to the congregation, people of God, pray. <laughs> so maybe we ought to do that. So what, is it, what are we talking about receiving Jesus Christ into your life? Well, you receive him as your savior. That means you need one. One who can save you from your sin before a living and holy God who can save you from eternal punishment, who can bring forgiveness for your past and your present and your future. Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch survivor of a Nazi prison, understood our need. She said that when God casts our sins in the depths of the sea through Jesus Christ, he puts up a sign, no fishing allowed. How can our, sorrow, our, 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 how can our shallow remedies complete that? We receive him as our Savior. We, we receive him as our Lord. By the way, when you receive him, you receive him as both, as your Savior and as your Lord. A lot of people want the Savior part, but not so interested on the Lord part. And that emphasizes His sovereignty, that He has authority over all things, including your life. And He warned, Jesus warned in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach in your name and cast out demons in your name and work many mighty works in your name? And then I, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. That is sobering. When we receive Jesus Christ into our life, we receive him as our advocate. That means we need one. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to plead our case, which he has done through his finished work. When we receive Jesus into our life, we receive him as our propitiation which means he satisfied God's wrath against us in that moment on the cross. And we remembered on Good Friday that at noon, it was dark from noon to three on the day that Jesus died, which was a sign of God's judgment. His darkness over the earth and the wrath poured out on his son, paying for our sins. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Uh, into our life, we receive him as our mediator. That means he's the bridge builder, that the gap between us and God is so great we could never cross it or never bridge it on our own. But he's the mediator before God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When we receive Jesus into our life, he becomes our great high priest. The book of Hebrews says that he has ascended into heaven, has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he forever lives to make intercession for us. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a living Savior. And once again, we get to hear this glorious, gracious news that God has given to us in pleading with those who have not received him to give this a fresh look in your life today, to not resist the promptings of the Spirit of God and to surrender to Him. So I want to look at the event in the Gospels, Matthew 28, 
And I want to look at how this is expressed specifically this morning from the inspired, writing, inspired writings of the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Romans. So I want to hang my thoughts really on several questions, four questions to be exact. And the first one is this, what is your response to the empty tomb? We read Matthew's account this morning, Matthew 28. What's your response to that? It demands a response. If he rose from the dead after being crucified, wouldn't you want to run to him, not away from him? Wouldn't you want to call out to him, not ignore him? What is your response to the empty tomb? Lee Strobel was a writer for the Chicago Tribune and was a skeptic, a rather crusty skeptic. Before his conversion to Christ, Strobel scoffed, Christians could spin fanciful tales of an empty tomb, but they could never change the grim, absolute finality of death. That's true. Strobel went on to say, then the unthinkable happened in my life. My wife became a Christian. I I anticipated the worst, and yet in the ensuing months, I began to see winsome changes in her character and values. When she attributed this transformation to God, I knew it was time to, to use my journalistic and legal training to thoroughly investigate Christianity, and maybe I could deliver her from this cult. The starting point seemed obvious. Clearly, the resurrection was the linchpin of the Christian faith. After all, anyone who claimed to be the Son of God would be one who would come from the dead. But if someone could substantiate that claim, Strobel thought, by returning to life, that would be be incredible, especially after being certifiably dead and buried. And even with a skeptic like Strobel, His investigation led him to think of some questions. The first was, was Jesus really dead? Was he really dead after this ordeal on the cross? The idea that Jesus never really um, died on the cross is found in the Quran. I was reminded of that some years ago when I was on a, a, a ministry assignment in Nashville and was talking to the taxi driver there and started engaging him in a conversation about the gospel and spoke of Jesus dying on the cross. He says, hold up, I don't believe he died on the cross. I said, really? I'm Muslim, he said. And our book says that he didn't die on the cross. The Son of God couldn't possibly die on a cross. The Quran, written in the seventh century, some Muslim sects believe that Jesus actually fled to India He fled to India, and to this day, supposedly, there's a shrine that's his grave. Liberal scholars in the 20th century uh, thought of elaborate theories that he, he didn't die, he just fainted or swooned. And they explained that away, that he had somehow been given a drug, and he was placed in the coolness of the tomb, and he revived So they say Jesus didn't die, he fainted. But these claims ignore massive amounts of evidence, not to mention the clear testimony of eyewitnesses that we find absolutely compelling and believe. So under the precision, just think for a moment, if you were sentenced to execution, you were under the precision of Roman rule. They were professionals. 
They knew how to execute people. And it was to them that Jesus was submitted. And so he was flogged. Where they whipped him across his back and pulled the skin off of his body. Some were flogged so severely that historians say you could actually see the internal organs. And then he was suspended on the cross. After a grueling walk up the Via Della Rosa, he was suspended on the cross. And the way you died on the cross was from suffocation, asphyxiation. You, you, you just, you were like a yo-yo because you would have to lift up even though your, your, your feet were nailed. You had to lift up to get a breath. They died of exhaustion because they couldn't do it anymore and couldn't breathe anymore. No, he died. He didn't faint. He died. In John's account in his gospel, he said, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews said, look, uh, Pilate, could we get the bodies down? We don't, you know, Sabbath, Sabbath is coming. What a, what the, that's the height of hypocrisy. And so the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the, the legs of the first and then the other who was crucified with Jesus, but they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. The professionals saw that he was already dead. And by not breaking his bones, it fulfilled another prophecy from the Old Testament that not a bone would be broken in him. Not one of his bones will be broken. So was Jesus really dead after his ordeal? Strobel says he was absolutely dead. Second question, was his tomb actually empty on the first Easter morning? We read in in Matthew 28 that they came, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and saw the tomb, and the earthquake had happened. The angel spoke to them, do not be afraid, they were told, for I know that you you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. He's alive. Go tell the disciples. And so for 40 days, Jesus appeared in and out of their presence before his ascension. A third question Strobel dealt with was, did credible people encounter him? Well, I would say so. You have his devoted followers, that's one thing, but an ever-expanding group of people who saw him, multiple accounts, multiple witnesses, and they would give their lives literally for proclaiming that he's alive. And when he ascended into heaven, the disciples look up in Acts chapter one, and they were told, this same Jesus you see going up is coming back again. So what's your response to the empty tomb? If he's alive, what are you going to do with that information? How does that message impact your life? The the witness and the testimony of this body of believers is it's utterly transformed us. We can't stop talking about how good he, he has been to us, how his grace has come to us. You heard that in a precious word this morning from the baptistry of a young man struggling with his own sins, finding relief in Jesus Christ. And that testimony could be given over and over and over again from this body in one way, in one form or another. What about you? What's your response to the empty tomb? Second question. What does the resurrection really prove? 
what does it really prove? And to that, I would have us turn to Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, 1 through 7, and we come back to this book where we've been for the last while, and this letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, and notice how it begins, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul would see the living, resurrected Christ, but it would be in a different way. Paul would see the living Christ on his way to Damascus when Christ came to him and leveled him and and dismantled him. Here, this religious Pharisee with paperwork to go and persecute Christians was, was leveled on the Damascus road. He was gloriously converted and changed from a violent blasphemer to the Apostle Paul to the nations. And so he says here, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And when we say the gospel, in some it is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day he rose again. So when I talk about the gospel, that's what we're referring to. Which he promised beforehand, Romans 1-2, through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And notice verse 4, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This would, if you read the book of Acts and you listen to Peter preach, the apostles preach, Paul preach, when they preach the gospel, they always preach he has risen from the dead. He has risen from the dead. What does it really prove? It proves this, that the word of God is true. And when it comes to what we believe in this world, cast the anchor of your soul on the truth of Scripture and rest in the promises of God. It is good news for your soul. All other ground is sinking sand. It proves the word of God is true and it proves that God keeps keeps His promises We could go through the book of Romans and chapter 4, it mentions in verses 24 and 25, as Paul is talking about Abraham being the father of, of the faithful, meaning that Abraham was declared righteous before God the same way any, any sinner is declared righteous before God, and that is by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he says here in Romans 4.24, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. And raising Jesus from the dead, God the Father vindicated his son declaring him victorious over death itself. Why does this matter? All you need to do is take a trip to the cemetery. Right? What hope do we have in this world? What do you say when you die? When a loved one dies? I won't belabor the point. I'll just say in passing, one of the most difficult assignments for me as a pastor is to be called by the funeral home to come meet with a family that has no exposure to the gospel and listen to them sit around a table ransacking collective memories to try to bring meaning to death. That's tough. 
So what energizes me to preach the gospel is that you would hear the grace of God. You would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You would build your life on His promises because one day we're going to die. That's not morbid. That's just real. That's real. And on that day, what's most important is who do you know? And I pray you know Him. God raised Him from the dead. It proves that Jesus Christ is really able to save us. If He lay rotting in the grave, who could He save? But He's risen from the dead and He is Lord of all. Third question, where were, what does, excuse me, where were the disciples, what were, they, what were, the, what were the disciples called to do with this message? And back to Matthew, it closes, Matthew closes his gospel with this great commission and he, he says, Jesus says to them, the risen Christ says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The Christian life is lived with that realization. Yes, there are governmental authorities. Yes, there are authority structures that we need to be under in this world necessarily. But he, he has authority over it all. And he sends his disciples into this world to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the apostles would take this message out and it would spread like wildfire through Jerusalem. At Pentecost, the Spirit of the living God came down and dwelt the believers in, believers in, new, in new covenant uh, promises and power. And the disciples would take the gospel to the world. Do you realize that we are gathered today under the banner of the gospel, under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where our origins are? That we're affirming and confessing what Christians have confirmed and confessed through the centuries. This is not a newfangled message that we're making up on the fly. This is God's good news that will always be true. And so maybe you're wondering, you know, why we as Christians should be witnesses and be serious about it. And that is because that was the last thing Jesus said to his disciples. To go, make disciples, tell them what I've done. There's no other plan. So let's close with a fourth question. The most personal. What is your response to Jesus Christ? In Romans 10, back to Romans again. Romans 10 Paul said that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is an incredible statement. Confession means to agree with, to make known. If I agree, if I confess, if I declare, yes, that's what I believe, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, he will save me. Now, don't get in your mind that this is some parrot repeat of, of a phrase. This is, I believe, the facts about who Jesus is. I agree with what 
what that message is, namely that I need a Savior and that I'm a sinner and that God has sent Jesus and I personally trust Him. You will be saved. What, from what? Not from bad experiences. Not from disappointments. Not from major setbacks. Not from discouragement. The Bible uses this word in a, in a, in a salvific sense. We'll be safe from eternal punishment, which is rightfully ours. Well, I don't like to think of God in those terms. Well, you have a hard time reconciling that when you read the Bible. He says, confess and believe in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he goes on and he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is a picture of repentance, a change of heart and mind with regard to sin and a commitment to turn and to follow Christ. A turning from my sin to walk in newness of life. Surrendered to Christ. He says in verse 11, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Maybe you're hedging your bets on, uh, and I've talked to some recently where it's just, you know, I just don't really, I'm not ready. You're not ready. What do you need to get ready? In light of the stakes. I'm not ready. Not ready to do what? To surrender to Him? Isn't that what it's about? I pray you would be ready. I pray that that would even come this morning. This message is not complicated, is it? But we must have the help of God's Spirit to understand. The Holy Spirit must bring conviction for this to come about. So are you dealing with that in your heart? Your need for Christ? Your need to live for Him? Ray Ortland wrote, there are many false Jesuses out there who will defraud you. What I'm wanting to do is preach the true Jesus this morning. And the only way I know to do that is to remain tethered to the Bible. But there are many false Jesuses out there. Ortland describes the ever popular feel-good Jesus. He always smiles, always approves. He never disagrees. He's just grateful when you show up. Whenever you want. And during the week, no matter what you do, you can always count on this Jesus to tell you it's going to be okay and everyone goes to heaven because everyone's basically good at heart, which is completely untrue. That's not the biblical presentation of the way things are. So one tip, Ortland says, of this false Jesus is sneaking into your thoughts is when you honestly wonder, so what's... What's all that bad about my little sins? What's wrong with a little pornography or pick your sin? What's wrong with that every now and then? Especially when life gets stressful. It's harmful. It's harmless, isn't it? And I'm no worse than the average guy, maybe better than most. So Jesus is okay with me because I'm better than him or her. There's a great danger for those with a nominal compromised relationship with Christ or understanding of who He is. There's a great danger with being a good church attender. Um, 
There's a great danger for a person trusting in their own religious efforts and their own evaluation of how righteous they are. There's a great danger in that. I think it was Mark Dever who said, a man, who, a man could be singing in church Amazing Grace with tears running down his cheeks, but if he's committing adultery, if he's defrauding his neighbor, if he's lying um, uh, to his boss, if he's stealing from others, if he's cheating in school, that's not worship. That's a sham. So I'm not wanting you to be led astray by the feel-good Jesus, but the Jesus who says to us, if you would come to me, I want all of you. I I want all of you. I want you to come and follow me. Again, Ortland says, religion says, do better. Try harder. Pedal a little faster. Religion says, you've got work to do. But the gospel of grace is, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling It's resting in what Christ has done and what he's done alone. This is a message of awe. This is a message we should never get over in this life. This is our hope. This is the message that brings healing to wounded hearts. I was reading the word, the testimony of one Christian leader recently, and he was quite candid about a painful childhood experience. And um, he had worked really hard as a boy and saved, and I believe it was a coin collection, a coin or a stamp collection. I think it was a coin collection that he had accumulated, that accumulated great value. And he tells um, 30 years later how his parents took the collection without his consent and sold it to buy more alcohol for their drunken lifestyle. Add to those types of sorrows, the trauma of war, violent crimes, and abuse, and assault, shattered and loveless marriages, wayward and rebellious children, broken commitments and neglect, and it's not hard to think of this world as a fractured, groaning planet, is it? Into our mess, Jesus Christ came. And he he bore it all in a moment in time that we might be free forever. So the gospel is a message of hope. It's a message I must confess. It's a message that meets my deepest need, reconciliation with God and peace that endures. It's a message I must respond to and I must respond to it now. Ray Ortland, one more time this morning. 2,000 years ago, the world's top people crucified the most noble man who ever walked this earth. But on the third day, he exploded from the tomb, surging with life and power from above. The future of this world is not up for grabs. Our king is the only one on the right side of history. And one day, on that day, we stand before him. Only those in him will be on the right side of history. That's where you'll want to be. All God deals with is broken things. He's a master at taking our brokenness and making something meaningful for His glory and for our good. So I pray that 
you would respond to this good news. The fact that the tomb is empty and that changes everything for us. Would you bow with me in prayer? We've talked about receiving Jesus Christ into our lives. He's a living Savior. That means He knows everything about you. He needs to be informed about nothing. And maybe this morning the Lord has opened your heart for your need for Christ. There's no power in these words per se. But I offer this prayer to guide you into God's presence, into His throne room, into His or to His throne of grace. And if you desire to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what does it mean to call unto Him? What does it mean to call unto Him that I might be saved? Maybe you could say, Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I have heard that I am a sinner today, and I believe it. I have heard that is why you came from heaven to earth, and I receive it. I've heard that your death on the cross was payment for my sin. I need it. I have heard that you rose from the dead proving that you overcame death. I need that hope. I've been urged to turn from my self-righteousness, my personal code of ethics, my religious efforts, my superstitions. And I've been urged to call out to you right now to come into my life. Come, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. Live your life through me. All I am and hope to be, I trust in you. Lord, thank you for the hope that you give to us that we never graduate from the gospel. And I pray that this word would do its work in our life today. In Jesus' name. Amen.